Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Very good. Thank you, John. Excellent. You were complaining about the weather just a minute ago. <laughs> I was, go. but you know, got to look on the bright side of life. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of people in this country looking on the bright side of life today. Yes. We seem to be nearing the end of a very painful period. And uh, I, I noticed on the first page of your Alpha report, there is a, uh, uh, a US uh, dollar British pound cross there. The pound is flying. It's flying. Uh, you know, the chart looks like uh, not far off the north face of the Eiger the last week. Um, very steep upward move in the pound. Big, obviously, quite big implications for uh, for shares. We've seen the FTSE 250 rally, FTSE 100 sort of be a bit stuck because of the high proportion of overseas earnings. Yeah, but it was still making some headway, uh, even though they're usually uh, you know strengthening pound would have would have wreaked havoc on the FTSE 100. Actually, the end of last week when when the idea that a deal may be coming, yeah. even the FTSE 100 did did well. But Absolutely. I mean, there were some huge moves, huge moves on Friday. Some huge moves on the 250. The banks were banks motoring, house well. building shares really really motored up. Yeah, are we jumping the gun? Are we jumping the gun? I'd like to think not, but who knows? Yeah, the eternal stick, question. Stick a finger in the air, and you know, it's, who knows? Yeah, I mean, it, but it, I mean, I, I write in my editorial this week about about this, this breakthrough potentially, and what it does suggest to me is that really how depressed the UK market has been, particularly the two fifty, by this this political impasse that we've been in for such a long time. Yeah, I think it, you know, it's it has definitely held back money flowing into flowing into UK shares, I think. And I think you can look at them in a number of ways. And, uh, you know, from a quality point of view, a lot of people, maybe quite rightly, will say that perhaps the UK stock market is not enamoured with huge amounts of world-leading or huge numbers of world-leading superb companies like, say, the S&P 500. Mm. But nor is it a rag bag either. And um, I actually feel quite upbeat on the UK stock market. That's good. I, yeah. We can I, have an upbeat week. No, I've been upbeat for the last few weeks. I think, you know, certainly from a perspective of, of an income investor, I think the UK market from, I'm not saying there's a huge amount of growth in there. You're not buying into Amazons and Microsofts, but you're not paying the ratings either. You're not paying the valuations and the dividends that are coming off a select, quite a select few shares look pretty stable. Actually, this is something that Chris Dillow looks at in his economics column this week, which is the importance of dividends in, in returns, particularly from the UK market, because yep. capital growth has been pretty mundane, but dividends have actually powered superb total returns. Well, I think if you look at the last five years of the FTSE 100, and this is rough figures, because I looked at this the other day, the actual price of the index over the last five years is up, only up about 10%, but the total return is up about just over 30%. So two-thirds of your return have come from dividends. Now, 30% over five years may not, may not sound great, but you know, compound that up. It's a damn sight better than you could have got off, off the bank. Not say, I nearly said bonds then, but actually bonds have done very well. <laughs> yeah, the, the dividend is, you know, I had a debate with someone about this on, on Twitter, and it's a, it's a subject that's quite, despite you know, your focus on companies that can grow their earnings, reinvest them and compound. There is a big role for dividends. And I am a big fan of dividends, certainly in, in preference to share buybacks, for the main reason that a dividend once paid cannot be taken away. Mm. And it is a tangible return 
on your investment in a share or shares. And the ability then to reinvest and do a sort of dividend compounding strategy is one of the best investing strategies, I think, that's out there for the private investor. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is what I'm going to be telling my audience of young professionals this evening. This is the thing, you know, a lot of people now, because bonds and savings accounts cannot provide the income, they have turned to shares. And therefore, the dividend component of shares, and I'm talking about the UK market here particularly, I think has never been more important. Absolutely. Yeah, the other thing uh, that Chris observes about dividends is that when you get a, a high dividend yield on a market, it's, it's often a very good sign that there could be good returns in future. Um, and, and I had a quick look in the context of that, that observation at, at the FTSE 250 yield, and it's, yes, very high, very high. This year it's gone up well plus 4%. This is part of a sort of work in progress now. I'm going to dig, dig a bit deeper into this. How exciting. Because I think one of the things that, I think it's really interesting is dividend stability and that there are quite a few stocks out there and if you just look at stocks in general dividend dividends are a lot more robust a lot more stable obviously than share prices are is this because companies really don't like cutting them yeah because that's a sign that not all is well there is and it's also a sign that the, the you, know, you can only make money two ways from a share. You, the share price goes higher than the price you paid for it and you get a dividend. Those are the only two ways you make money from owning a share. And as I said a few minutes ago, the, the dividend component obviously is tangible. It can't be taken away once it's been paid. Obviously, a share price gain can reverse. And this is the problem that there seems to be this sort of textbook acceptance of share buybacks and it's it's better because of the tax implications of personal investors dealing accounts and personal circumstances. And I, I actually really strongly disagree with it. I think there's been far too much emphasis on buybacks, particularly for the interests of the managers who have been been t- been signing them off because it's it's been done from an earnings per share basis in their bonus schemes. And often for the investor, it hasn't worked because it only really works in in sort of growing businesses where you don't pay too much for the shares. I mean, WH Smith has been a, a great example of a share buyback in conjunction, in conjunction with a rising dividend that has worked superbly well. And you've got Next as well. Which is Next has done well. JD Weatherspoons. You know, JD Weatherspoons has been shrinking its numbers of shares uh, for many, many years now. And just go and look at the share price chart of that. Mm. So there is a place for share buybacks. So we come back to uh, we we'll come back to W. H. Smith because I know it's one of the companies yeah. you want to talk about this week. Let's talk about Marston's. Uh, yeah. Let's turn to companies now. We'll start with Marston's because I, because this is a dividend story now as much mm. as anything. Big chunk of yield, but it's kind of I mean you've covered this for the last well not this week but the previous four weeks yeah. in your magazine column looking through the accounts and and this week there was profit warning and one of the concerns that that we sort of observed when we were writing up this uh, this this profit warning was that the yield is approaching 7% and it's being paid by essentially selling off its assets it looks that way so so i i guess what i wanted to ask you i mean you know this this is seemingly an example of where a company is doing everything to keep paying the dividend but it's weakening the business yeah this this is a danger of a of a company that becomes wedded to a dividend policy and becomes a slave to the dividend policy and SSE um, the electricity and utility company um, went down this route probably more aggressively than than any other company in saying it's all about the dividend and you know you have charts about the dividend and eventually they cut it 
because the company's profits stopped growing. I, I feel that Marston's is now in this in this um, exact same situation and arguably has been for a while. And it's been throwing a lot of money, you know, throwing a lot of money into opening up new pubs, refurbishing its existing pubs, buying brewing businesses or brewing brands, and its profits aren't growing. And this is a company that's loaded up with debt, mainly up against its tenanted pub business, which actually is doing okay. The brewing business is actually doing not too badly. It's these managed pubs, the pitcher and piano type businesses, these what they call destination and premium. So you have your sort of high street bars and then your family dining, family eating experience, sort of maybe out in the suburbs. And these pubs are not doing well. They are they are not growing their revenues. Their profits are not are not growing. And I think there's very, very good grounds for thinking here that Marsons is throwing a lot of good money after bad. And one of the things that I identified in my reports over the last three or four weeks is that it is spending a lot more money on its assets to maintain them than it's depreciating in its accounts. So it's I think it's under depreciating. And this is this is important because it's under depreciating, which means its profits are overstated, arguably, and also its asset values on the balance sheet are overstated. And last year the company did a big write down, so reduced the value of the value of a lot of its pubs because they weren't making the profits that justified that value on the on the balance sheet. And I don't think it's gone far enough. This company is making very, very meagre returns on the money money that it invests. Yeah, so profits this year are going to be down from last year. Yeah. And, and, then, and then not grow again the year after that yeah, either. Yeah. And this is despite shoving loads of money in capital expenditure into the business. And this is, you know, Marson's I calculate is making about a six and a half percent return on capital. That's not enough for me to justify the carrying value of those the capital or the assets on the balance sheets. Now, this is important because if they have to be impaired, and every year the, the company, what the company has to do is it has to look at the value in use, so how much these assets are worth based on how much cash they can produce in the future, and what the carrying value on the balance sheet is. Now, if these businesses' profits aren't growing or they're going down, the value of those assets in use is going down. And if it goes below the value that they're on the balance sheet for, they have to impair them. Now, the implications for investors is this, is that that impairment gets taken out of the retained profits within the business. And that's where the dividend gets paid from. If you don't have enough retained profits, you cannot pay dividends. Now, Marston's, I think in its interim interim accounts, had about 100 million of retained profits, and its cost of its annual dividend is about 47. It has hundreds of millions of potentially more of assets on its balance sheet. And a pretty chunky interest bill to boot at yeah. the same time. So if it's going, if it has to write down those even by a bit, and I think the last year it was sort of over 50 million, 50, 60, 70 million write down, some, some, some were written back, then you're left, without, you're left with distributable reserves that are less than the annual cost of the dividend. Big worry there. So what comes next? You you, uh, you you raised the possibility of a takeover. We've seen we've seen a bit of corporate activity in this sector. Yeah, uh, this, co- this company is now quite keen now, almost as a matter of urgency, to pay down debt, and it's going to do that by selling off assets. 
Um, yes, we have seen some corporate activity in this sector. We've seen the Fuller's Brewing business has been taken over, um, and we've also seen Green King mm-hmm. in the process of being taken over. I'm not so sure anyone would want to take Marston's as a, as a whole package, but I wonder whether this is potentially a, a breakup story. The debt is largely secured against the tenanted pubs. Now, I don't know whether you could offload them, but you know we've seen Enterprise Inns or EI being taken over. Which is, which is, again, highly leveraged, tenanted pub business. There's obviously appetite for those assets, and those assets are doing quite well. Oh, it's private, private equity, wasn't it? Stonegate. Yeah, Stonegate. So, so Stonegate bought EI, but that was a highly, obviously highly leveraged business, mm. pretty much like Marston's tenanted pubs. And Marston's tenanted pubs, I say, are doing quite well. The brewing business has got some very, very good brands, real ale brands. It brews also got a lot of licensing brands. It's one of the biggest brewers in the country. There may well be interest for that. It's just a question of who wants to buy the pubs. But maybe there's buyers for that. But I think you know, you're looking at a very chunky, you know, chunky enterprise value because because of the debt. Yeah. Bit of a bit of a tricky situation. But I think but I think it could be broken up. Watch this space. Should we uh, should we talk WH Smiths? Yeah. I know that's uh, that's a business you're keen on. Uh, some news there this week, particularly from the US. Yeah, I continue to like this business. So we've had two we've had two things actually this morning. Uh, we've had the full year results. Uh, which were pretty pretty reasonable, and then we've had an announcement of another acquisition in the American travel business. I mean, this is its second big acquisition over the US. Uh, the first being Inmotion. Yeah, this is so, a lot. This is a lot bigger. A lot bigger. Yeah. So, so first of all, how is Inmotion doing? Doing all right. It's bedding in well, and it's winning winning new contracts. And it's going well. I mean, the idea was that that was potentially a sort of platform to to expand into the US. Through that brand, but but obviously they've gone, they've just jumped, they've jumped that and gone straight to phase two. Yeah, this is a much bigger acquisition. So they're buying buying a business called um, Marshall Retail, which is a um, quite an interesting business actually. It's about 170 outlets, and there's about 50 of them are in airports. And then there's a big sort of resorts business heavily centred around Las Vegas. Well, that sounds good because people spend silly money in Las Vegas. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. And it's it's a profitable business. WH Smith paying, you know, $400 million for this, about £312 million. So how does that work out to sort of on a multiples basis? Well, it was, does, it look, does it look like reasonable value? No, it looks quite full. You know, it looks like, you know, thir- 13 times EBITDA coming down to 10 with cost savings but it has some growth there are so you've got 170 outlets and then over the next four years they're going to be about 35 36 new stores that are going to open up in the u.s and they're going to increase the selling space of their u.s airport business by about 75 percent and this will feed through and i think it'll make this deal stack up actually so WH Smith are saying, sorry, just to interject, they're paying for this, half of this, they're paying for this with new shares. So that was my next question. So, yeah, so, <laughs> so half the price is coming from new shares, 155 million of new shares. And the company are saying that even by those extra shares, this is a deal that will do a mid single digit percentage earnings per share accretion next year, double digit the year after. After three years, it'll get a return on investment above its cost of cost of investment, whatever that is. Mm. The problem with acquisitions is they always 
dilute the returns of the business because you pay a premium for the assets. But what this does is it massively increases the scale of the travel of the business in America. I mean, it feels like a long game, the, the beginning of a long game. Yes, but it, it does so many positive things for this business and it gets it much bigger scale in America. There's a lot of airports in America as yeah. well. I mean, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of growth to go after. Yeah. A lot there gives it then gives it the platform to win new contracts because you're in. It's quite difficult for new entrants to come into this market and win new contracts because a lot of reputation. The landlord quite often will will roll over a new a new agreement with the existing tenant because if they've done a good job, they get comfort, they get safety from it. So it's quite hard to build this business from scratch. There's definite there's growth in this. But what it also does is it keeps going with the big improvement in the quality of WH Smith's earnings. It dilutes the high street business even further. And so we're getting more and more and more now to a purer travel retail business. And we saw in the results today, that business is doing pretty well. They're winning new contracts in the UK. UK hospitals business is going great guns. Bit controversial, but there you go. Yeah, but you know, it's a choice. This is a business that I I continue to like a lot. Good. Okay. I mean, the shares have not done much over the summer, but uh, I think they were up six percent this morning. Oh, really? On the on the back of this news? Yeah. Oh, that's good because I mean that that price has sort of drifted along throughout throughout the last few months. But um, there you go. I thought that was a good deal. Shall we talk about a company that you don't like so much? As uh, as the UK gets out of Europe, another country uh, company is doing the same thing. Domino's, and I guess that's the big news here. It's like and people always say that you know America can be a graveyard for for British companies, and <clears throat> a lot of case now for looking at Europe as well. And, and I, I've come across a lot of underperforming European businesses when I you know, in my twenty odd years of looking at companies, and this has not worked for Domino's. It spent quite a lot of money and time, effort trying to build up a business outside the UK to sell the story of a you know an extra leg of growth away from the UK which is becoming more and more mature and it hasn't worked where where was it it was germany wasn't it that was so the big germany push. germany um is is the main one but they've also got um switzerland iceland sweden i think uh, and there's another one that I can't. Luxembourg. What's it going to do then? I mean, is it closing it or it's going? To sell well, it, it says or? it's going to exit in a, in a in an orderly manner, whatever that means. Yeah, I've heard that before somewhere. <laughs> so, what we don't know is how you know closing. If you have to close businesses, there's a cost. There's a cost. I imagine they'll be able to move these stores on. But the only problem that you've got, I think, is that you can get these stores that can be profitable at the store level, but what's going on behind? All this is a huge amount of, of infrastructure of distributing ingredients and so on. And that's where a lot of the cost is. And when you take those costs into account, the business loses money. So as pizza shops, some of them, some of them probably all right. As a, a business which is being served by infrastructure, it's not. I mean, was it a scale problem? I mean, if you built the infrastructure to pay for it, you just need more shops sitting on the back of it. I just, I just think it's, it's a different, it's a different market. We, we like a lot of fast food and takeaways in this country, and um, you know, it's a fruitful environment. And I'm not so sure that in Europe it's the same. Yeah, I, I guess this leaves Domino's with a problem that remains unresolved, which is that that it now becomes just a, a UK business, and the UK still has serious problems, which yeah. we have talked about before. Is it any closer to resolving? No, I think, it's, I think it looks, it looks like it's still in a big big issue here now what you know the european business was losing about five million 
So eventually that those losses are going to go away and that obviously will lift up the profits. But I've banged on about this a lot for the last couple of years that Domino's is is having a row with its franchisees. And this is coming from two 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 ways really. One way is that the franchisees who are very powerful actually there's a the the, the franchisees the, of the store the store base is very concentrated in the hands of a, a small number of franchisees and they have a lot of power and they think basically that Domino's are making too much money out of them mm. and then you get this situation where the strategy of growing is by splitting the number of territories so to put that in plain english where you had a, maybe a small town or a medium-sized town with two Domino's pizzas shops in it, you have three or maybe four. And what that does is that that takes sales from the existing ones. Now, Domino's almost doesn't care about that because Domino's makes most of its profits not from rents or from franchise fees, but from selling pizza ingredients. Mm. The vast majority of it... So it doesn't care. If it, if it splits the territories and it means that more pizzas get sold in the same town... It's selling more ingredients and making more profit. I don't understand how that works. I mean, surely the same amount of people want the same amount of pizza, regardless of how many shops it's being sold from. Well, you might, you might, if you open up a, a Domino's in another part of town, you might take pizza sales from somebody else. Right. So that's who. That, pizza Hut. Pizza Hut. Papa, Papa John's. John's. There's lots of independents out there. That's true. So with very low food ratings, I hasten to add. Yeah, if my town is anything to go. By. No, yeah. <laughs> food hygiene. But so, if you can grow, if you can grow the you know the amounts of pizzas sold, that's great. For from if I'm if I'm selling ingredients, that's great. I'm selling more. I'm making more because that's where my profits coming from. If I'm a franchisee, and I've got two shops, and I'm being told to open a third shop, and that third shop t- starts taking sales away from my existing two shops, I've got then got all the costs I've got to cover. I'm potentially taking a massive hit to my profits. But, but I guess the big question is, how is this going to get resolved? Because this is fundamental to Domino's growth, the, but it also seems, seems to be a, a, an almost a I'm problem sure, without resolution. I'm not sure it can be solved. Yeah, that's because, the problem. Because, that's the worry. Because, because what you've got now is a clear conflict of interest between... Between how the how Domino's the franchisor makes money ingredients, and how the franchise franchisees make money selling pizzas, and the whole success and the whole initial attraction of Domino's Pizza as a company was based on the fact that it was a franchise business. It was capital light. It was making money from the ingredients, picking up the franchise royalties without having to, and all the assets were bought all the assets and the operational gearing, the operational risk taken by the franchisees, which meant that Domino's was making high profit margins, high return on investment. Throw into that a saturated market. You've got competition, you know, the likes of Just Eat, Deliveroo, which is opening up the options to consumers. And you're left with a really difficult problem because how can you actually grow this business? And the other thing you can't do is you can't really rip up the franchisee model because if you rip up the franchisee model, you, you really are people really suggesting that you could go and own your own stores with all the overheads and all the problems that all the other restaurant groups are having? It's it's it would destroy the economics of the business. So I think this company is in a real hole. Avoid. 
avoid. Should we talk about washing machines? I know it's been playing on your mind this week. Yeah. Your washing machines. Yeah. So you had a bit of a league. Yeah. We don't have to go into the... Don't go into it, but... <laughs> but you did. New washing machine? Yeah. Tell us what happened next. That's very... Uh, I became a customer of AO World All right. for the first time. Scuttlebutt, here we come. I was actually really impressed. Okay. Now, this is a... If you look at the share price of this company, it looks a bit sick. Um, yeah, it really does. It really lo- looks horrible, like... It looks chart. the signs of a business that, that looks really unwell. And... Well, it's not making any money either, which is also... A it is in the UK. Okay, but it has that European problem. Like, Again, uh, yeah. So, dominoes. but it's very interesting, and you know, I a bit of a nerd on this kind of thing. But if I ever ever get someone round the house that works for a sort of stock market, interrogate. I ask, I sort of just ask <laughs> questions about you know how busy are you and how does this do? Where have you come from and all this kind of stuff? And you can get into quite an interesting conversation about you know how the, how the business is working at, gr- at ground level. But I was actually really impressed with. And it's an internet-only retailer. The customer service is light years ahead, and customer light years ahead of you know John Lewis. I'm sorry to say, which we know you're not a fan of. Not now. I used to be a massive fan. You know, for example, you know, you get on the internet. You know, the, the repairman comes round at twelve o'clock, says you that your washing machine's dead. It can't be fixed. One o'clock. I'm on. The, I'm, I'm ordering a new machine through AO for tom- for for guaranteed delivery tomorrow. In the in the price free, I then realise I've bought the wrong machine. Two hours later, I'm on the phone. I get through in about ten seconds to, to actually somebody. I don't get left in a queue with a song playing at me for fifteen minutes. It gets solved in five minutes. I don't lose my next day delivery. The email conversation uh, confirmation comes through immediately. The next day, I get a three hour delivery window. They turn up on time. Dump it on the kitchen floor. The whole customer experience is different from, say, going to another retailer where you can buy it for the same price. If you make a mistake, computer says no, you can't. You can't change it. You then have to pay for a, a name day delivery. And I just think that I'm not saying this is a fantastic market to be in. And it's you know anything but. It's commoditized. It's un, you know undifferentiated product. But this is some, this is the logistics here, and the customer experience is for me, a source of potential competitive advantage. Okay, so not necessarily enough to make you think about buying the shares, but, but certainly enough to suggest that in a tough market, the shares might be being harshly judged. I'm not right. sure about that even. Okay. What I can say... Where does, where does scuttlebutt help? Right, so I see the route to a higher share price. Okay. But they need to do what Domino's has done. Bump Europe. Because because it's not working. It's it's the the losses are going up, and they're burning through lots of cash, and you know the company doesn't really want to go and ask shareholders for more money. But I see I see an opportunity for this company, and um, and it's not you know I'm, you always think that your customer experience is unique, but actually. I've spoken to a few other people, and I don't trust what people say on forums. But I, you know, other people have used and think, "Yeah, this is good." Even the the repairman, actually, the Bosch repair guy, singing the praises of AO, saying that you know their their ability to to deliver. And this is almost like Amazon, like except it's not doing a a wide range of products like Amazon. Mm. It's electrical, so the scale of the opportunity is not there. But they've got this UK business into profit. Making about fifteen million a year, you've still got a way to go. The market capitalization of the company is about three hundred odd million. 
So you still need profits to go up, but I think there are some weak competitors in this market. And we've I've just I've named one. And I think there's an opportunity for this company to gain market share. And this this is not going to happen overnight, but I see a path to a higher share price here. But it's contingent on something radical happening within the business. At a corporate level, at a yes. Yes. Uh, not not an operational level, which seems to be all right. Yeah, I looked at the shareholder list of this. It's quite an interesting shareholder list. Some, you know, sort of deep value investors. I know. It's, uh, I mean, I don't know whether it's out of date, but I looked on on SharePad. The sort of the Crispin Odie's in this one. Okay. Or was in this one. I, I, obviously, just just for remind our readers, I'm not saying this is an up to date list, but this is what I'm, this is what I was getting. And it's quite. An, and there's a few others on there. It's quite an interesting interesting list. And um, you know this is not this is not the kind of company that would attract me as a you know long term buy and hold and just leave it to compound. But I think it's a very interesting business. It's a sector that people would ord- ordinarily just dismiss instantaneously. But if there are people out there who are looking at special situations, distressed opportunities, if I was one of those people, I, I would go and do some more work on this business. Right. I, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a fabulous business. Not a screaming buy, but no, uh, no, but one to keep an eye on. I think, it, I think it's interesting what's going on. And, I, and my experience as a customer, and I always think that one of the best ways you can learn about a business is be a customer of it. And that's hence, hence I've written about it this week. And I, it's a you know, sort of scuttlebutt type. Mm. Just got me thinking. Yeah, def- definitely there's some interest there for a certain type of risk taker shall we say all right um you haven't written about th- this next company in your alpha report but but you mentioned that you wanted to talk about it asos yeah is that how you, my, my kids always tell me off pronounce this wrong assume you're not a customer no <laughs> the kids customers no no what was it that, that in- intrigued you about asos this week I, mean, I find i find the share price reaction of this company to event to events very interesting, well, to they, say the least. They shot through the roof on they some shot, pretty weak results. Yes, yeah. we said, and it's like almost like it's almost like oh well, they they went up because they were they weren't as bad as people expected. But this is a company that attracted a lot of fans over the years, and has been a momentum stock, a story stock. It's definitely not momentum stock anymore. No, not that, not going upwards. No, <laughs> it's been very, very richly. Richly valued by the stock market, and it it operates on incredibly low profit margin. I mean, it's, it still is richly valued. Oh, I oh, mean, four uh, fifty five fifty five times forward earnings. Oh yes, yes. Actually, the shares aren't much lower than when it announced the profit warning. I don't know when it was start of the year. I, I forget. I lose track. Yeah, I lose track but, of profit warnings. But it's interesting when the first profit warning came out. The shares fell by less than the earnings downgrade, so the actual PE went up. What's going on then? I mean, um, big supporters or yeah, big-ish supporters I mean, who, as as we said before, there are businesses. Amazon being the great example of this, Costco being another, Aldi and Lidl being another, that adopt a low margin strategy and generate huge amounts of sales volume on it and make a lot of money. This is essentially what I think. Asos is getting at my my concern with this business is that, and we've seen it with these results, is that when you operate on a low low profit margin, you haven't got much to protect you from anything going wrong. Mm. But the other thing is that this strikes me. I think we've seen a series of businesses that have come onto the stock stock exchange over the last few years 
that have essentially tried to run before they could walk. This may be one of them. I think Purple Bricks is a is a is a very good example. Well, Amazon has tried to become the global fa- online fashion retailer. Yeah. In a very, very short space of time. Yeah. Very ambitious. It's very ambitious, and if it pays off... And, but the problem is, is that we, li- we live in a, in a sort of stock market environment, and have done, arguably always have done, where people buy into the story, it becomes a momentum share, mm. and it's a good stock until it isn't a good stock. I mean, the, the sales are, I mean, huge. And, and, you know, they've been growing... I mean, they've, well, nearly, nearly trebled in, in five years. Yeah, it's, it's been, you know... You can't knock, you know, what it's done from from a top line perspective. Selling more stuff, it's been very successful, and you know, in terms of, and that's that's telling you that this this is a company that does have a connection with customers, which is a good thing. Mm. Obviously, just can't turn that into profit, or it, it ha- it's becoming less effective at turning that into profit. I think it's not. It, it's putting it's put itself and by expanding so quickly, it's removed a buffer from things going wrong. Is it, I mean, is there an element of competitors catching up as well? I mean, you know, when it when ASOS started, when it really started this expansion, there wasn't a lot else out there. It really had a quite quite a lead on on competitors in the online space. You've got the likes of Boohoo out there now. You know, a lot of the sort of bigger known brands are are, are getting their online act together. Yeah. Is it just that you know this is the you know leader uh, early mover advantage has really not worked in its favour here? The internet has arguably lowered the barriers to entry into retail. That's not to say that you, the costs of getting in are, are are not insignificant. You need distribution, warehousing, IT. You know, logistics is very important, but competition is there, and you know they are a disruptor. I always I always come back to next on this, that you know I I, I just I'm aghast almost at how next continues to earn nearly twenty percent profit margin on selling. Clothes and to a lesser extent homeware, so I find it incredible. But it does. There you go. So, so ASOS are not a fan then from a share. Not, not at the valuation it's at now. No, no. Absolutely. And I think I think if it had had a smooth, you know, you give these companies the benefit of the doubt if they can if they don't disappoint. I think once you disappoint, you start raising questions on the business model, the strategy. And the low margins for me just for me just make it the low margins, high valuation just make it too difficult for me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thanks, Phil. Lots more in the magazine actually this week, and a few bits bits and bobs more in your alpha report. You mentioned National Express, but I assume we can talk about that another time because I know. Yeah, we won't talk about that. We've we've run out of time, but good, you like good, good things on that. Good things on National Express. We'll come to them next week, yeah. maybe. Um, let me talk you uh, through what else we've got in the magazine. Let's stick with the company section. Algie Hall has updated what he calls his Zeus screen, which is a, 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 value, a deep value screen. Uh, and we've looked at the gambling industry and what Brexit means for that. Although it's probably all changed now that we've potentially got a deal coming up. A lot of offshore gambling has moved to Malta uh, over the years from Gibraltar, which has been part of this whole thing. And various tax changes in the UK, uh, just trying to get to grips with what's going on there. Lots in the personal finance and fund section. Obviously had the big Woodford news this week that, that his investment firm is being wound up and that he's no longer the manager of various funds. So people will be able to start getting their money out, although it might not be quite as much as they put in, sadly. And uh, in the big theme, we're looking at uh, trade wars uh, and actually how actually avoiding fallout from the uh, US-China spat might be something you do by looking at Europe uh, and its big internal market, uh, which we will no longer be part of very soon, quite by the looks of things. All the usual tips, lots of news. 
Really nice feature this week from a guy called Steve Clapham. I think you know, you may have worked with in the past. Uh, um, we were we were peers as transport analysts many years ago. Steve's a, Steve's a good guy. Um, Steve he's doing some really good stuff. Yeah, he, he runs a training business, um, but be, he's also really uh, passionate about uh, improving audit quality. And has written a big piece for us this week with some suggestions uh, as to how audit might be improved in the UK, which coincides with a great big review of of the way uh, the audit market is regulated. Anyway, and the cover feature, which is about the changing of the guard, which we've spoken about a bit on the podcast. A lot of companies getting new chief executives. Uh, I think record levels, actually. I mean, some really big names and big companies is um, are hanging up their boots. And we're looking at what happens next, basically. It's pretty, pretty, you know, it's kind of a nervous time for investors. So uh, we're, we're, we're trying to sort of alleviate some of the, uh, the uncertainty there. Anyway, there you go. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank you all for listening. Um, pick up the magazine in all good news agents, Britain, including WH Smiths. Uh, Britain's new bosses, what changing leadership can mean for the FTSE's top companies. And we will be back again next week. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 